Welcome to the Carl Landry Record Club. On this week's episode, we discuss Hanson's The Walk. That's right, Hanson. D'Angelo's Voodoo and Life Without Buildings, Any Other City. Be sure to check out the older episodes. Last week's Devin Gilfillian was our guest. We talked about Jack's Manic in the Dead 60s and Faye Webster. And the first episode, we talked about Silverchair, Donny Hathaway, and Kate Bush. Remember, if you want to suggest an album, leave it in the Apple Podcast review. And please give us five stars. The theme music for the Carl Landry Record Club is by Philly's own Marion Hill. Welcome to, uh, I don't even know what episode this is going to be. We're doing all these early, so I don't, I don't know. So uh, welcome to the Carl Landry Record Club, a music podcast from the Rice Ricky Sanchez. I'm Spike. That's Mootlu. Yo, yo. What's up, man? Hanging in there, man. Hanging in there. How about you? Yeah, I'm all right. You know, everything's the same. This, this has been, <laughs> the, this is now, a COVID thing has been going on for all four seasons of 2020. Wow. Uh, it's wild. Yeah. So anyway, I, I was, I actually meant to ask you something earlier today when I was, uh, um, listening to music. So I used, um, Apple podcasts for a while and then, or Apple, Apple music for a while. And then I switched to Spotify. And one of the things I like about both of them is, uh, is that it sort of knows what you like and it puts things into your feed that, like the algorithm decides that you might like right. because of what you already like. Right. But I was sort of wondering, uh, you know, like I've talked on the Ricky a lot about the the echo chamber thing of social media, but I mentioned once that like Netflix is the same thing. Netflix knows what you like and feeds you more of it. Um, and I sort of was wondering, A, if you use that at all, like if how you currently discover music, if you use that at all, but B... I don't know. I was wondering if it just makes me keep on listening to the same things I already like because it knows what I like in the first place. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm kind of, I guess, caught in that echo chamber of the two as well. Apple, Spot. I kind of go back and forth. I use both. Yeah. Um, but as far as Netflix, no, I mean, you're saying for music listening or? No, 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 no. I was just using Netflix as if you, do you have Netflix? Yeah. Yes, indeed. Okay. Yeah. And um, uh, your girlfriend, she uses Netflix as well? Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Do you yeah. have different login? Logins we use, or we use the same one. We uh, use the same one. Yeah. So my wife and I use different ones. And if you go into hers, like it's all hallmarky romantic comedies, whatever. Not what she's watched, but what it's suggesting. Right, right. And if you go into mine, it's all like uh, depressing sci-fi, basically. <laughs> um, so no, I, I guess I was just wondering, just using Netflix as an example, if like the algorithm of suggested music just keeps you in what you already listen to. Like I wonder. Uh, like my instinct is it tells me about new things, but then I wondered if maybe it's just keeping me listening to the same exact things rather than new things. Right. Yeah. I think there is an element of that because it's always trying to anticipate what you want mm -hmm. and it's not programmed necessarily to try to break you out of what you want uh, or right. to try to challenge you. It's, it's designed, whether it's Netflix or Hulu, Apple, Spotify, they're all calibrated in a way to, to try to anticipate your every want and desire. 
Right, so, and keep you using it, and keep you liking it, right? By giving you the same thing, and it's the same thing with Facebook and Instagram. In a sense, I mean, that's that's they're just studying us. We're like, yeah, you know, we're in the Rats. matrix, and they're studying yep. us, and they're trying to anticipate everything we want and like and need and crave. And I don't know, man, we're we're just we're 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 like we're just we're in the matrix. That's what it feels like to me. I don't know. I was I was talking to uh, the guy that does most of my tattoos the other day, and um, he was saying how. Uh, he was like, you know, dolphins might be smarter than people. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, how is that? I was like, I don't see any like people world with a bunch of dolphins in the fucking in the crowd. And he goes, well, that might be proof that they're smarter. And then he goes, but maybe like we are in people world and the dolphin, <laughs> like maybe that's what this is. Maybe. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I also thought of it too, when after he, uh, I would have never listened to that Donny Hathaway record that you right. had in the first one. And like, cause I told you it, it doesn't line up for what I, and there's three, three of the songs on that record, like usually end up in run playlists for me. And I've suggested the album to like three or four of my friends who I know love live music, who I think would never listen to it before. Nice. And I guess I'm just, um, I'm actually thankful for doing this because it, it will make me listen between the listener suggestions and yours. It's going to make me listen to things that I've never listened and to. And conversely, before. the same for me with Silver Chair. Like I still yeah. have those songs running through my head. You know, you, you, you really latch onto an album and you start to, you're like laying in bed or you're just walking around. You're like, I'm watching you. Watch. Yeah. Like I'm just hearing those melodies. Like, so that's when I know I've really connected to a record. So I think, yeah, I think our taste is pretty different. And that's actually going to make for uh, a better setup because it's like we'll yeah, challenge each so. other and and also try to um, you know I'm going to end up listening to things that I probably wouldn't otherwise and vice versa. So, well, if you're listening and you want to suggest an album, leave it in uh, the Apple Podcast reviews. So leave a rating, pref- preferably five stars, um, unless you're an asshole or you have a. Re- <laughs> if you have a, I guess if you have a real complaint, but at this point in the pod, you can't have any real complaints yet. So uh, leave your album suggestion with your name in the Apple Podcast reviews, and uh, we'll every every episode we'll do an album that I like, uh, an album that Moot likes. Um, an album that you suggest, and then uh, and then a lot of times we'll also have an interview as well. So, uh, you want to get into the records? Yeah, let's week? do it. Let's do it. All right. So I, we did we did mine first the first time. So why don't we do yours first this time? All right. Uh, my pick this time is D'Angelo's Voodoo, mm-hmm. and uh, this is one of my favorite albums. Uh, I consider it to be a masterpiece. I know many many uh, music fans do. Um, and just to give a little backdrop of this record, because I remember when it came out, I remember going to see him live at the time, and I was just so, it connected with me so much, and I still feel that way 20 years later. But just to go back a little bit, he made his debut in 1995 with the album Brown Sugar, which is a classic in its own right, um, and I think it really signaled his emergence as a very singular, unique, and extremely talented new R&B singer. And especially for that time, yeah. you know, like, cause that time was dominated by like the baby faces right. and then the one twelves and all that kind of stuff. Keith sweat, all that. Kind right. Of stuff. Yeah. He yeah. was, so he was coming from a bit, a different angle with it. And I think, I think what happened with that record was he toured extensively behind it. He really established himself, had a lot of success, but after that record, I think he sort of, as happens sometimes when you go through a long album cycle, he sort of came to an impasse as far as what he wanted to do next. And I think, you know, just having researched a little bit, he was at a point where 
He was a bit disillusioned with the state of contemporary R&B at that time. He felt it was too commercialized. He felt it was too pop-oriented. And he wanted to dig deeper and try to find a sound that really broke out even more, even though, like you said, he was pretty distinctive with Brown Sugar. He did set himself mm-hmm. aside, but I think he was even trying to move past that sound. And, you know, I'll kind of go through it here, but I think he really found that with Voodoo. And it took him it took him a little while. I think he did some collaborations. He did some covers. And it was really when his son was born that that experience kind of be, became his creative muse. And he actually uh, fathered his son with uh, Angie Stone, who's another great singer, and she co-wrote some of the tunes on Voodoo. But I think I think even even having a kid and that responsibility, he still had plenty of time to work out, though. Apparently, yeah. Like, give, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you remember the vi- the video for uh, for how does it feel? Oh like, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. He's. I don't know. It, it seems like he, he maybe had a nanny or something because he still got his sit ups. He was doing, and I remember I was reading an interview with. Uh, that Questlove did around that time, and he was he had like a trainer, and he was really working out. That was part of the experience oh, really? of making this record. And I think eventually he became disillusioned by that because he's he's a true artist, a true musician. And I think he got put into that sex symbol sort of uh, position where you know there's a way that labels and marketing companies can cash in on that. Mm-hmm. And I think in a way he he came to resent that after Voodoo, and I think it's part of played. A role in why he maybe stepped away for a long time until he came back with Black Messiah. I think, I think in some ways he he eventually ended up regretting the fact that they sort of labeled him as a sex symbol. But that's further down the road. And uh, with this particular record, in the build up to Voodoo, uh, w- one thing I love about this record and that you hear it and then you know just kind of researching it a bit that they did was they went for a real musicological kind of approach. You know, he, he wanted to go back deeper to the earlier soul gospel music in pulling away from this contemporary, the sort of contemporary R&B sound that he didn't really dig. And I want to just read this quote that he had from Ebony at the time, because I think this gives a real insight into what was driving this record. And it was um, he said, I consider myself very respectful of the masters who came before. In some ways, I feel a responsibility to continue and take the cue from what they were doing musically and vibe on it. That's what I want to do, but I want to do it for this time and generation. And kind of I think part of how they created this record and I'll, I'll go through the short list of uh, incredible musicians that are on here but they would listen to a lot of Marvin uh, watch a lot of Marvin videos and James Brown videos line of him still videos soul train videos and they would take those grooves and jam apparently there's hours of unreleased jams of him and the musicians and I know for example the song Africa eventually evolved out of a, a tune um, that they were kind of vamping on a Prince tune called Parade I think the record that I hear the deepest connection to with this one, that's also one of my favorite records, is Sly and the Family Stones, There's a Riot Going On. Mm-hmm. And there's a very specific musical thing on both those albums that I hear on Voodoo, that I really hear on There's a Riot Going On. I see kind of like a musical kinship is that everything is played a little bit behind the beat. And mm-hmm. it really takes a skilled group of players with a certain commitment to a certain feel you know, so like if everyone locks in that field where they're just behind the beat, um, 
it creates this like deep syncopation and the closest thing I can compare that to is 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 Sly's There's a Riot Going On and also the next record he did after that called Fresh. And um, I mean, just to go through the musicians, you know, Questlove on the drums. Can, can, can I actually ask you about that for a mm-hmm. second? Um, uh, so uh, Moot's a real musician. I am not. Um, <laughs> but I, I've been I've been taking guitar lessons for a, a couple of years. And so I've only played things where like chords come right before the beat, like where you push it. Right. Like, you right. know, um, and that that's a thing that happens in rock music a lot. Yep. And I um, my you know, my, my teacher pointed it out to me and I was like, oh, like and then I started hearing it, feeling it. I don't think that I've ever heard or or noticed anything behind the beat is is that is that sort of um is that specific to this music or like where does that come from i i guess it, or maybe it's all over the place i just never noticed it i think in our in certain like more groove heavy s- styles of r&b and soul music you hear it i mean it's definitely there I guess um, it's probably in a lot of records that we maybe just don't consciously think about it that way. Yeah. But I, it's something that when I listened to There's a Riot Going On by Sly and the Family Stone, it was always something I noticed because it's not an easy thing to do because yeah. you can fall off the tracks real quick quickly if, if not every player is dialed into that. Yeah. And, you know, this combination on this record of uh, D'Angelo, who just has this amazing feel. I mean, even when you just hear him play solo on the piano or even just playing guitar... But with a combination of him with Questlove and Pino Palladino, I, I know a lot of bass players that I know have tried to emulate Pino's sound on this album because it's so particular. Then you add musicians like Rafael Sadiq, I mean, who's mm-hmm. like a musical genius in his own right. Uh, Chalmers, Alfred is a legendary guitar player. Charlie Hunter, who's one of my favorite guitar players. Um, James Poyser, you know, Philly, Philly legend on the keys, Roy Hargrove. I mean, just amazing jazz musician. I mean, just go down the list and it's, it was, it's cool to see how these players who I've heard in so many other contexts came together on this record to uplift what D'Angelo was doing. And I think they all dialed into that sensibility that I think makes this album really special along with the songs. I think they're great tunes. He has a very specific way of arranging vocals that I think is unmistakably him. I can hear the Prince influence in there. I can hear Sly. I can hear Al Green. But I think what makes this record special to me is there's a lot of retro soul out there. You mm-hmm. know, they're good bands that do that sound. It's like, oh yeah, that sounds like you you right away it right away puts you in a time and place, but it's retro. But I don't think voodoo is retro. I think they synthesized these influences and kind of created something new and futuristic. I, that's why I think I love it so much, because I can't compare it to anything else. Although I do think a lot of people are influenced by it. I know a lot of musicians, it's a continual touchstone, continual reference point. And uh, I mean, it got a great reaction at the time. It was a big hit. It was, I think Rolling Stone ranked at number 23 on the top 100 albums of the 2000s. Pitchfork ranked at number four, top 200 albums of the 2000s. And he won, uh, I know he won the Grammy for Best R&B Album, Best Male R&B Vocal Performance. So uh, I just think it's a seminal record that not just in contemporary R&B, but in 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 the overall world of R&B and soul music, because it's kind of a bridge album. They were so unabashed in paying homage to these great artists, you know, that that we that that people love. But to actually take it, really absorb that music and then come up with something new and fresh that still sounds like really fresh to me uh, 20 years later. And I think it always will. Uh, I think he's kind of in a in a class by himself. And I know Questlove was a big 
part of conceptualizing this record. He's like, he has that kind of musicological bent with everything he does. And I, I really dig that. It's like almost academic in a way, but once, once you hear the music, there's nothing academic, but it just feel it's groove. It's, it's just undeniable. So I, I consider it a masterpiece. Um, curious as to your take on this record so i mean i remember when uh like when cruising came out on because it was on Mm -hmm. mtv all the time and that was a cool tune i remember buying that buying brown sugar i remember having that record um and then you know uh, the reason i I mentioned like i mentioned the video for how does it feel because that was on mtv a lot too, and it's basically just his body the whole time. Uh, <laughs> right. you, you wonder, you wonder why he became a sex symbol. That's that's probably right. part of it. Yeah. Right. So so I remember not really liking this and not getting it. Hmm. Um, now I could say that, and this is true mostly, is that my ear has always been one where I'm listening for like, what's the song. You know, like, right. like what's the, 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 and it's not just like a, like traditional artist. like I love Tool, I, but, but even like Radiohead, when they went off the rails after like, okay, computer, there would only be like two or three songs, an album where I could find the song right. and not just, right. so, and I remember, so I haven't listened to this. It came out in 2000, right? I, I, so you mentioned that your album was this and I was like, oh, I have some thoughts on this because <laughs> this is cool. Cause it's one of those things that you mentioned it's number four on pitch. It's one of the things, one of those records that everybody basically agrees is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting here left thinking that I like, I don't re- I didn't really like it that much. Um, so I will say that going back and listening to it, and I probably haven't listened to it in 15 years. Like mm-hmm. it, it's like I've heard I've heard it on, but I've never listened to it. I did like it more now than I liked it then, and maybe it's because I'm older and more patient and more uh, willing to. And maybe it's because you suggested it too, and maybe because I wanted <laughs> I to like it more. I a little bit there. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm looking. I just wanted to go to my uh, to like. I guess what I would say is that. What I enjoy is the vibe, right? Like, but I find myself almost like when I'm listening to an audio book, that eight minutes passed, and I I didn't notice that the song changed or something. Like it it um, it sort of meanders a little bit too much for me, even though it's and I'll tell you, it sounds so rich. Like the sound of it is so like um, yeah. I don't know, big and thick and without, without being overly produced, it doesn't sound overly produced or anything, but it does sound like big, um, which I like too. I, 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 I wrote down that it sounds like the scene from a movie where a 38 year old guy has a date with a super hot woman and she comes over to his apartment and he's got a really nice apartment and he's already made her dinner and he makes her like this great dinner that no guy could probably even cook. Uh, and then, and then they realize on the couch, like, you know, that that's, you know, and then this is, and like, feel like making love is playing in the background. Yes. You know what? You just set the scene and I can picture it 
Yeah. Frame by frame. I can see it. I know exactly what you... I feel like I've seen movies where I've maybe heard one of these songs right. in there. Yeah. 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 It's for late um, night vibing, smooth, lovemaking kind of kind of record. Yeah. You know? But but only... But not for kids. Like no, that's no, a, no, to, no. to me, it's a dude at least <laughs> in his mid-30s. So going back to it, there were three songs aside from uh, How Does It Feel that... Uh, that I felt like, all right, I like these. Like, I like Devil's Pie. I liked The Root and I liked Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, those were the songs that I liked. I, I, but I, I guess I, I, I still don't, even though I like it better now than I did then, um, I wonder if, as a musician, there are things about it that you appreciate that do not connect with me because I don't hear what they're doing. You know, like maybe I'll, maybe I'll pre, I think I even, exp- I, I said in our last pod, I talked about that, that Bob Dylan record, like that live record where right, the audience Newport. turns on him in yeah. Newport. That was a bootleg forever. And if I had listened to that without, I don't like Dylan really, but if I had listened to that without knowing the story, it would have been boring to me. But knowing the story, it sounds sort of awesome. So I wonder if the context you've given made, made me like it, will make me like it more. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, I know I'm, you know, Classic R&B soul music is like I, I love every kind of style of music. If it moves me, it moves me. But that's mm-hmm. always the place I go to. Yeah, I guess in a way, the artist that he was inspired by, uh, Marvin Gaye, Al Green, Prince, Sly of Emerson, those are artists that I love. Oh, like they're they're sort of cornerstone artists for me. So in a way, I guess for me, I, I sort of I've heard a lot of people try to emulate those kind of classic records but i feel like he he took the influence he and his collaborators took the influence and made something fresh now i hear what you're saying like i'm I'm generally of the mindset of be concise you know i love like a three minute song that's perfectly yeah concise and delivers on the melody and lyric there's not a wasted note this is a different kind of thing it's it's purposely drawn out at times i think and, and if you hear like kind of the genesis of it there's like hours and hours of them just jamming and you hear snippets of that throughout the record where it's just a vamp or yep i think it's kind of the spirit of what they were doing and if you hear if you really if you dig some of those sly records like i do that from that there's a riot going on fresh era early 70s it's a certain sensibility that just resonates with me and i do think it's always been like a musician's record like something that we yeah. geek out on like you, you know like I, even as a singer, like what he does vocally, you could strip away all the tracks, the the instrumental tracks, and just hear his vocal with those what he does acapella layering harmony. I just it's I find it really satisfying. But I understand if you're looking for something that's more of like a concise statement, that just melody lyric and it's not too drawn out or or there's not too many vamps. I can understand why maybe it didn't connect with you as much, but I also wonder like too, like it's just a taste sensibility thing. You know, you seem, Mm -hmm. you you know, it's like kind of like for me, I remember seeing him at that time. It's like a personal record for me, that album at that moment in time, you you know, really connected with me. 
And um, I remember that was kind of around the time I first was really listening to The Roots and just uh, Roy Hargrove. I'd actually been listening to a lot of these musicians doing their own thing, Rafael Sadiq. It was almost like an all-star collaboration around with D'Angelo at the center of it. So, uh, yeah, I think it's... I think it's a singular album, and I think it's definitely a musician's record, too. Yeah, and you mentioned the the time in your life. I mean, that's why people's favorite records are, you know, when they're between 14 and 22 right. or something. Like, right. you, don't, you don't meet a lot of people who's... You can like new music at 35 or 40, but it's rare that one of your favorite albums ever came out when you're... 35 or 40. Yeah, that's a strange you're not, thing. Yeah. Well, because because I guess because you're like what are you going to associate the record with like paying your mortgage? <laughs> like like what, you know right, what I mean? right. Yeah. Like I I guess everything is new and everything is exciting when you're that age and you're into discovery and I think that right. happens less as you, you get, get to an age where you're just jaded and cynical and it doesn't yeah. really matter anymore. Yeah, yeah. You can't feel the thrill of things anymore. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, cool. Well, I'm glad I listened to it again. I'm glad I like it better than I did. Right um, on, right on. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to listen for the the instruments playing behind the beat now because I, yeah. I, I'd never listened to that. I never, never listened for that before, but I'm going to listen. And to when that. you lock in on what Pino Palladino does against, uh, you know, against the instrument, I think if you just kind of lock in on the bass sometimes and hear what he's doing, it's just, there's magic in that, you know, it's really, it's, it's unique. And then, if you want to take it a step further, then if check out There's a Riot Going On by Slide. Maybe we can even do that one at some point. Yeah, sure. Um, okay, my turn? Yes, indeed. All right. So my record is Hanson's The Walk, which came out in 2007. So Hanson, obviously, uh, most everybody remembers from Mbop, which came out when I was in college, what, probably like 96 or something like that, or maybe 95. Um, it was interesting when that came out. So I remember at my college radio station when that thing came out, nobody quite knew what it was. The internet was there, but you didn't have the wealth of information from about everything right away, right. you know? So, uh, it's funny to say you didn't know if the singer was a girl or not, but like <laughs> you would see a picture and not be sure and not have anywhere to look it up. And I also remember like there was a Dust Brothers remix or something like th there was even a moment where people didn't know if alternative radio stations should play it or whatever. So that song comes out and they're in their early teens. I think Isaac uh, was the oldest one. I think he was like 14 when that came out. And it's easy to make fun of it, but when you think about the fact that a bunch of 14-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 10-year-olds, a 14-year-old wrote like a, almost a perfect pop song. Yeah. Um, it's like a mega yeah, hit. I mean, yeah. <laughs> right yeah, out of the I gate. Mean, yeah. To this day, I mean, it, it's lasted. It was. It's a song that actually, in retrospect, you would have thought would have been a one-hit wonder or whatever. But this that song has persevered. If you go to bars and stuff, everybody knows that song. So, Absolutely. Um, so they put out uh, a follow-up to that. And then they, they put up a Christmas record. And then they were, they were making an album, their third album, called Underneath. And I would recommend on YouTube, there's a documentary they made when they were making Underneath. The documentary is called Strong Enough to Break, about them trying to get, get that record away from their record label and start their own thing and not be part of their record label anymore. They wanted to separate from that. Um, and there are a few... I, actually... Um, 
Jared Leto and 30 Seconds to Mars, there's a, a documentary about them trying to get off like the troubles with their label. Hmm. Um, and you're also thinking about a time when it was right about when everything was going to collapse for labels too, when that happened. The Napster, um, going right into that yep. Napster era. era. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Totally. So, um, so underneath comes out, which I think is great. And underneath, uh, it went from everything being syrupy, sweet pop to, um, you know, I, I remember they wrote a song with Matthew Sweet, like things became a little more, uh, power poppy, I would say, mm -hmm. like, like, think about like star and um uh like i mentioned matthew sweet and things like that um and then this record comes out so um this is uh the walk is also on their uh on their label and um it is a to me their best and most grown up record i after this i i sort of think they stopped evolving um there are a lot of different sounds on this. There are hooks in every one of the songs. It, it's not like they're doing, it's not experimental or anything. Mm -hmm. um, but you can hear all three of them, all three of the brothers. So the, the drummer, Zach, the guitar player is Isaac, the older one. And then Taylor is the piano playing one, like the, the front man one. Mm -hmm. But they all sing lead on different songs. And you can kind of hear who each of them is uh, as part of the band by the songs that they sing. Like, it's interesting. Zach has a sort of a, a pretty sort of uh, voice. Zach, the drummer, ends up doing the ballads. Like, there's a couple of ballads on the record. Um, one is called The Walk. Up in the sky And every moment Stands endlessly One's called Go, and Zach sings both of those, which are which are great. Um, the opening track is called The Great Divide. So they have a they did a charity trip to Africa, and they ended up recording an African choir when they were down there, and they used it on this song. on this they every every city that they went to they would meet their fans out front and walk like five blocks and and everyone had to take their shoes off <laughs> and and uh toms that that was right when tom started they like they would sell toms at their shows because every one of the every every you know pair of tom shoes they donate uh a pair of shoes to uh people in africa who oh, need that's them. awesome so yeah. So, and then, and then my final, you mentioned personal connection. So 
So I always loved them. My brother and I always loved them. And going back when, to Mbop to the going back to Mbop. Like I, I remember we got into, into an argument that the, <laughs> the Christmas record was good. Like I was like, the Christmas record is great. Um, and I'll never forget when Underneath came out, they put out like a it's not on Spotify or anything, but they put out an acoustic version of Underneath of that whole album, which is really, really good. And I remember thinking these guys have taken it to another like level. Mm-hmm. So when I was programming the um, alternative radio station in Chicago, I was a little too young to be doing what I was doing. So I, I started doing everything I always wanted to do. So it was an alternative radio station, but we were playing rap all the time too. So we were playing Kanye West, we were playing Lupe Fiasco. We would play like The Fray, like things that were a little too poppy for alternative. Right. If it was a good, a good record, we would just throw it on. So I'm like, I always liked Hanson and they had this new record coming out. And I'm like, what if we did this old radio trick where you play a track from a band and don't tell anybody who it is um, <laughs> and call it like a mystery band. So I got on the phone with uh, their management and the band and I was like, are you guys into it if we do this? And wow. they're like, yeah. And they, they were into it. And I, they ha- and I never got to do this because I, I was derailed by the company that owned my radio station. Oh, but we man. did agree. No, we played it on the air. We played it a and lot. And what were the phones like? What kind of reaction did it? It was awesome. It was awesome. There you go. Um, and we had a lot of like, you know, there were people that thought it was Coheed and Cambria. And I get I don't know really? how familiar you are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there were pe- some people thought it was Michael Jackson. Um, I think because Taylor Hansen can sound a little bit like that. And remember, this was a time when it wasn't so easy to just find out what was this was 07 it it wasn't super easy to find out what it was um so it was the reaction was great we had a big reveal on the air isaac hansen said the the f word said fuck (laughs) on the air we weren't in delay or anything because they were so excited that we were doing it that's awesome and the finale of it was supposed to be there's this building in chicago called the merchandise mart and it is a massive building. It's got a, it's literally got its own zip code. It's several blocks long by several blocks wide. And it's the building where my um, my radio station was. And they were going to we were going to shut down the merchandise mart, and they were going to play a show in the merchandise mart for us. Um, but before that, uh, thank you, MS Broadcasting. They stopped us from doing all the cool shit we were doing. Um, what was the reasoning could, behind that? Well, they, I, it's actually a funny story. So, um, so they had this guy who was programming our rock station in St. Louis start to look at our playlist every week because they didn't know what we were doing. And one of the songs we were playing was Apologize by One Republic. You mm-hmm. remember that yeah, song, sure. right? Yeah, sure. But when that song came out, that song was listed as Timbaland because he w- produced it. And for some reason, the song was listed as Timbaland feature- featuring One Republic. And I'll never forget the Rock PD looked at this and is like, why are they playing Timbaland? And they made me pick apart the playlist and we had to take off anything that was like iffy at yeah, all. Man. So Hanson went, uh, Kanye West went, all that shit went. So, um, I, I think they're great, man. I like I, uh, you know, I've seen them. I've seen shows a bunch of times, and they've always been great. They're incredible musicians, and they. I think like this is. I think for a lot of bands, there's a point in the middle of the career, sort of like the athlete um, prime, where their physical prime and they're like they're still physically able for an athlete, but they've begun to get smart. Right. And it's the the point at which they're they're sort of 
before there's diminishing returns for either of them. Um, and I feel like they hit that with this record. Yeah, that's a great uh, parallel there. Um, yeah. You know, of what is that sweet spot of when you've accrued all the wisdom, the perspective, the experience, but you're also, I think in musical terms, it's like, man, you're still charged creatively because sometimes right. bands and artists sort of on the downturn, they, they start to kind of chase their own tail a little bit mm-hmm. in some way, or it, if they have few hits, then they're kind of chasing those hits in some way. And uh, same thing as an athlete, like hopefully we're a year or two away from that moment with uh, Joel and Ben, but that's uh, a, yeah, that's yeah, 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 but that's a good parallel. I mean, I, man, this, you know what, you know what, listening to this album made me think about that there aren't that many bands anymore that are like a self-contained unit like these guys. Uh, right. Sort of the paradigm created by the by the Beatles. Mm-hmm. They every member sings well. I mean, they sound great. Right. They each sound great in their own distinct way. They write. They are a unit in the studio. You put yep. them together live. You know, they're they're great instrumentalists. This wasn't as much of a surprise to me as Silverchair, but it was still kind of a surprise right. because I guess they were. You know, I. I knew Umbop, I knew they were talented, but I guess I hadn't really ever delved into one of their, their records. But just a level of musicianship and song craft that's in every, you know, writing a pop song is a deceptively difficult thing. It's not an easy thing to do. And they are like really good. Actually, you mentioned MJ on Been There Before. Yeah. That verse yeah. is like, yes. that's channeling Michael Jackson, you know. Yes. It's like, oh, okay, I, I could hear that could have been on bad or something, you know. On that black candy, and I play some from Chema doesn't. Ooh, you doesn't. Shoot, you doesn't. You feel your heart and soul. Yes, you're right. Uh, I, I had never thought that song is definitely Michael Jackson. Yeah, that, especially yeah, yeah. the vibe on the verse is mm-hmm. uh, is is really it, it just it evokes that right away. But then I hear them at times. Uh, there is the Running Man. That song has kind of almost like a the piano element, almost has like a Billy Joel kind of thing. Yeah, going well, on. the the uh, the guy who produced this record, Danny uh, Korchmar, also produced Billy Joel. Actually. There you go. Yeah, there's uh, produced James Taylor, Neil Young, like all of those sort of fit in with the how the the record feels. It's yeah, sort of that they it's it puts you in that mood of that '70s rock singer songwriter kind of thing. The, the sort mm-hmm. of the AOR album oriented rock kind. Of, I mean, I think of ELO, Billy Joel. Uh, they just uh, and I'm and then I'm thinking like there aren't that many groups that I can think of that are more contemporary that operate in that way. Cause pop music now is like, you know, there's 10 co-writers on one track yeah. and, you know, and, and it's all fragmented into different pieces, the producers, the writers, this, that. So it's kind of cool to see a band that is a unit and, and, and that, uh, that, that is sort of every song is just, it feels like it's radio ready. Almost every song does in some way to me. I mean, um, uh, and and what's interesting, by the way, is that radio like ignored them after their second album. Like they they haven't had a song on the radio. I think there's a song called Penny and Me 
that was on their third record that got a little like hot AC play, but like they've essentially never been able to escape. Tommy Conwell used to say to me, you know, Tommy, sure, right? sure, yeah. Uh, Tommy used to say to me, he talked about Last Resort from Papa Roach, which is a fucking awesome song. He goes, The problem when your first song is that fucking good, like no one will ever. Like you will, you will constantly like be trying to escape that song, right? And I, I just think it's it's amazing. You're you're right. Like every th- song could so easily be on the radio, but um, after Mbop, it was like tough, I guess. Because that's such an over the. T- I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's. I knew I had to get in, get that in there. Sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but that's so infectious. I mean, I still see videos of people driving in their car just singing that. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, how do you, I guess the way to do it is what they do. You kind of go your own path there. I, what I like about them is that they they kind of made the move to being indie and mm-hmm. and ch- kind of blazing their own trail kind of early. I mean, they could have still probably tried to stay in that bigger label machine, but I, I admire artists who do go their own path because in a way – I think sometimes if you become too infiltrated by what the label wants, you you go you'll get stuck in that cycle of oh well, where's your next mbop? You know, G- give us the right. next mbop. Oh, we need another, something like that. That's not something to chase. And the irony is, w- this is like really high level pop songwriting on this record. So it's it's kind of it's 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 interesting, and I just think they're. Uh, there's an undeniable musicianship. There's also something about siblings performing together, sibling right. bands. Yeah. There's a unique synergy that sibling bands have that is is kind of uncomparable, just a group of musicians coming together. You know, it's like it's the familial connection, you know? Well, and the fact that they haven't killed each other by now, right. you know, is is like and they, they still they so th- their career went an interesting way in that they ended up basically being like cult indie band in that they have enough fans to every market they go into they'll sell out like whatever the house of blues is they'll play they'll play like the 1500 they'll do a cruise every year like with all their fans and um and because they own everything like they probably do great you know uh, financially and they don't have to worry about selling a million records or their spotify streams or anything like that they just have their their fan base and that's what i always think is the mark of a truly talented and enduring band is like can they sell tickets because there are groups that come out with a few hits or several hits mm-hmm. a few album cycles cycles later they're not selling any tickets there's a reason why a band endures even if the machine isn't behind them anymore even mm-hmm. if radio isn't behind them anymore there's got to be something that resonates live i like this the bonus tracks on here was that was kind of cool to hear them yeah you know uh, hear them in the live context and it's seamless i mean they sound as good live as they do in the studio i mean that's not always the case especially with groups that have had big pop success you know to to be able to deliver live that's 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 what'll keep you in the, that's what'll keep you having a career so i mean they'll always have a career because they can sell tickets I feel like if I could track them down and get them on the pod, it would be funny to relive that oh, 07 story. That would be great, man. <laughs> would we interview I, I, all three of them? I guess we could. I mean, or, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I, I sort of feel like I know enough people to where I, I could probably at least get the ask in. It would be. We should, it we should do it. We should try for yeah. it. You know. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would love to have them on. So I'm glad you liked it. No, excellent, it, excellent. Yeah. All right, all right cool. Um, so that is, uh, and if you're 
I mentioned Underneath is good, uh, The Walk is great, and they actually have this one song, they put out a greatest hits record, but they have a song called I Was Born, which came out two, three years ago, that is uh, one of the, the the best songs they've put out in a while, mm. so I, I would recommend that as My well. My guess is they probably have one more, or a few more great records great, in right, them. Right, they're still young, yeah. right? I mean, they're not, mm-hmm. you know, so they might have a couple yeah. eras of greatness in them. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine they are, like, the oldest one is probably not even 40. Right, yet. right. That would be my guess, right. yeah. Uh, so the listener uh, the listener album, so this one came in as a suggestion for Carl Landry Record Club when it was still on the Ricky, um, because we're recording these first few pods before we're on Apple Podcasts. So, um, so PJ Reduta, <coughs> excuse me, um, suggested, and I basically, I didn't know... I looked down the list of Carl Landry Record Club records, and I I just picked up some, something that I knew I did not know. So the uh, the band is Life Without Buildings, and the album is called Any Other City. their only album it was their first album only album came out in 01 they are scottish um pitchfork had it as the 128th best album of the 2000s so when they recorded this they were all students at the glasgow uh, school of art which i what i thought was particularly interesting is that i think three of them uh and the singer definitely were not musician art students they were visual art students they were like painters like the, i think the singer sue thompson was a painter um so they were in school for other art and they decided to put out this record um they broke up a year later when the singer decided that that's what she wanted to do she didn't want to do music and it didn't come out in uh, america until 2014 um and then they uh, I was reading they actually played the very first headlining show The Strokes ever did, Life Without Buildings, um, opened it up. Hmm. I guess for lack of a better comparison, it is punk music, uh, but it is not like your classic, like there's no distortion on the guitars. There's not really any yelling. It's not fast. Um, I, I, I guess I have a hard time coming up with a comparison i did think that the the two th- the two things that reminded me of i would say her vocal uh cadence actually reminded me of johnny rotten from the sex pistols interesting um the way that, like it was kind of like a half talk she would drift into a talk sing kind of like thing. A spoken word repetitive spoken kind of style yep yep funny because I, you know, as influential, at least as a, um, uh, 
in theory as the Sex Pistols are, there's many more punk bands that sound like the Ramones that sound like the Sex Pistols, right? Mm -hmm. Like the Sex Pistols were an ideology more than they were like I think all that influential as a band. And the other thing that they reminded me of is like the the, the music reminded me of the Dead Milkman. Um, yeah, I can hear that as well. You know, you know, like that's sort of like super lo-fi, like almost no even overdrive on the guitars or anything. Um, Just a plug in and play type of, yeah. type of feel. I guess the other band that I heard occasionally uh, was Television. A little uh, bit, but but a simpler yeah. like television has a pretty they they had some pretty involved riffs and double guitar parts and there was a level of virtuosity, but there were moments where that kind of just simpler clean kind of sound um, evoked that for me. Uh, it's kind of that post punk like early eighties kind of sound. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I guess for me it's like it was challenging because. There are elements that I would hear in, in the musician that the musicians were doing where I almost would wonder at times like, hmm, I wonder if this groove, what would it sound like with a more traditional melody over it? Right, right. You know, like almost, even just something like what David Byrne would do. Uh, it doesn't have to be not just like sung out necessarily. Uh, but her thing is like taking the same line and almost making her voice like a rhythm instrument, you know, you know, mm -hmm. uh, just like saying the same line over and over and over again. And it does create a certain hypnotic thing, but it's in yeah. its own place. It's not, it doesn't feel like she's too concerned with like locking in with what the band is doing. It's just, she's sort of there in her own rhythm. And then they're just kind of laying these grooves underneath it. Yeah. I was going to ask you if there was a word for that, like for her, the repetition of the same word, the same phrase over and over and over again. And I, I'll, I'll tell you, like the first 30 seconds of it, I actually, I love when people are singing in English, but have an accent. Right. Like it always drives me nuts when like, like Def Leppard, like, why don't you have an accent? You talk, you have such a thick, <laughs> you have such a thick accent. And then when you sing, it's gone. And I like, there's a singer, an Australian singer named Amy Shark, and she always has like an Australian accent. She doesn't like lose it. it. She doesn't lose it at all. <laughs> she doesn't. Yeah. Sometimes she does, but a lot of times it's there. And I like that I could, there's a song called, um, wait, hold on. Let me, uh, where was it? There's a song called, uh, let's get out mm -hmm. that her accent is so strong that I can't even understand the words that she's saying. Right. <laughs> So the first 30 seconds, I was like, I do not like this at all. And then as it settled in after four or five songs, I decided that it wasn't going to be a favorite thing of mine, but it wasn't really like anything I had ever heard. Like it was, it was definitely um, a one of a kind thing and not in a bad way or a, even a, a way that I will like remember forever, but it was definitely original. And I was, I was doing sort of the same thing that you were doing in that in songs, there were things that I liked, mm -hmm. you know, like there were things that were grooves. They would go for 30 seconds where I would feel like it was really something and then it wouldn't follow through with it. Because but, uh, her style is so atypical 
it's not there isn't really any melody in what she does it's like there's right. rhythm in what she does mm-hmm. and that when she catches certain moments it becomes almost hypnotic to just to hear kind of in the way yeah. that spoken word if, if when you hear spoken word if you hear like a spoken word poet against like a jazz group kind of mm-hmm. kind of and they'll be then it done then it done then it done and yes. they'll hit those yeah. rhythms she has sort of her own version of that which is interesting but it's not something that's like oh there's almost be times where i'd be frustrated because like ah, oh, i want to hear the hook what, what this 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 piece of music does there's a hook in there over this groove and yeah. it never <laughs> it never goes there but maybe that's what sets it aside because it seemed like it, it seems like it it sort of caught on and built like this sort of cult following uh well all these years it, later you, you wonder if it's one of those things where if they had ever made another record it would this record wouldn't have been remembered in the same right, way like right less is putting, more <laughs> yeah like putting out one record everybody's like i wonder what the next one's going to be like and they're like ha ah, you'll never know right, yeah know? that's it We're, well there was a line from the very beginning of the pitchfork review of this which said it perfectly long, uh, this was for the reissue long yeah. live the singers who never intended to be singers yes that, that's the truth though right that's kind of uh that's kind of the hook of this. If you think of it that way, like she's not really, she's an art student. She's an artist. She's a visual artist. Yeah. And it's sort of like they, in an experimental way, kind of put this band together. And, the, but it's the fact that it's, we're talking about it, that it's still around, that it's been reviewed like a decade and a half later. That's kind of interesting to me. There's, there's something mm-hmm. there, you know, it's sort of like, uh, if you ever know Tommy Wiseau's The Room, yes. you, know that? Yeah, you know, which is yeah. so horrendous. Yeah. But within how horrendous it is, there's like some charm in there, you know, uh, like, oh, hi, Mark. There's so you, you you get caught on things that like I'll watch clips of that movie, even though I know it's so bad. Yeah, well, there's a not to say this is I, bad, but I'm just saying it's so unusual yes. that there's a char- there, if something endures and catches on, there's usually some kind of thing, intangible thing that keeps people coming back to it. Yeah, the thing about The Room, the reason that there are a lot of bad movies, the, the, uh, and no one says this about The Room, and it's uh, our friend Mike Weber, who uh, we mentioned on the Ricky a lot, actually made that movie about The Room. Uh, what's it called? Um, it got nominated for an Oscar. Actually. Oh, yeah, yeah, the, um, the with Franco, James Franco. Uh, yeah. Um, um, what was that called? And the Disaster Artist. Yeah, Disaster Artist. Yeah. So, yeah, so Mike uh, made that, and Tommy was like, part of that whole thing and is a very strange character. Yeah. Um, like is every, but everyone says that this is about the worst that, you know, this is a movie about the worst movie ever made. The reason that the room is remembered is not because it's bad. There are lots of bad movies. There is, it's because there's something about it that is not, that is incredible it's just no one can put their finger on right. what it is you, you know watch a lot of youth i watch clips and like, you must be the expert mark yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like why did he deliver that line like that like that but yep. that worked but so for some reason i'm interested in that uh, yeah. you know there, there's like these highlight reel clips like not even the whole movie but just like six or eight minutes of uh well that's all you need to really watch of the room right the highlight right. reel clip yeah <laughs> you know it's like because because he, you know what it is too. He's a mystery. Yes. And like, what's his story? Like, we still no one knows. Like, what? No. He's wealthy clearly. Yep. He was able to put up that billboard in L.A. for like five years. He. Yep. He paid like he financed this thing and kept it afloat. 
Yeah. And no one knows what his story is. Where is he from? He said he claims he's from. Didn't he claim he's like an all American boy from Louisiana or something like yeah, that? Yeah, but he's obviously <laughs> he's like from Austria or something. He's from like Ukraine he's, or Latvia yeah. or something. I don't know. He's from somewhere in East, Eastern Europe. But uh, but I guess I don't know. It's interesting to me that sometimes there are things that when you look at them, all things being even are like, wow, what is this? You mm. don't know what to make of it. But that is a really interesting thing when it's there's something intangible that keeps people coming back to it. And like you said, maybe the amazing thing about it is like no one can figure out why. Yeah. What What is it? What is it that keeps people liking this? What sticks? Right. Yeah. And when you can't put your finger on it, that's what makes it more compelling because you're trying to understand and you'll never understand. The, the <laughs> last thing I, I wanted to bring up to you um, is something you said about uh, singers that aren't singers. Because you are like, you're not just like a musician or whatever. Like you're a really good singer. Like you yeah. have a really, really good voice. There's a lot of people who sing, but you are like, good at it yeah thanks brother um, thanks man yeah <laughs> you got it tommy <laughs> um uh, but one of the things that reminded me of is when so i was in like me and my friends had a cover band when i was like 23 and it lasted like a year or two and i sang in the band now i don't know how to sing um and i forget who it was it maybe was one of the guys that rented us a practice studio or maybe somebody who played guitar but he was like it's amazing how the singing is the thing that is most upfront. It's the thing that everybody remembers. And for some reason, everybody thinks that anybody in the band can do it. You know, right. like, like, like they don't think of it like a, uh, an instrument the way that, oh, like the only way you're allowed to play guitar in a band is if you're good at playing guitar. Right. Like the, the, the you know what I mean? You like can't you have wing to be that. A, you can't be bad. No. At it. It's not going to work. It's not going to no, work. No, you can't do it with drums either. But for some reason, people feel like, and maybe it's because the instrument is your voice and you're like, well, I could do that, you right. know, and it's not, a, not as complicated. So, um, I, it's just odd that it happens with singers who, which is the two most important things in the band are the drummer and the singer. Um, so it's just amazing that the singer would be somebody who didn't know how to do it. Sometimes I think what happens with singers who are not like traditionally sort of technically singers mm -hmm. is it's sort of like this idea of imposition of personality where there's like, they may not be uh, singers in a conventional sense. Uh, but, but there's something about what they do that's interesting or compelling, you know? Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, this is not a great example cause I do think he's a great singer, but take Mick Jagger, for example. Right. Not like he's not, you know, Marvin Gaye or Prince or mm -hmm. I wouldn't even say he was like on par with someone like Chris Cornell as far as like the incredible vocal instrument that he has, but he's a good singer, but a great singer in the sense that you don't mistake him for anyone. It's his, it's his phrasing, it's his delivery, it's his attitude. And sometimes that is, you know, the difference between, yeah, you can't have someone who's like a mediocre guitar player or a mediocre drummer and have a good band, but someone who maybe conventionally isn't a great singer has something unique about what they do, about how they phrase, about how they deliver, even just about the timbre of their voice that connects with people. So there's more of that gray area there. But yeah, mm -hmm. we don't mistake. And when we hear a great singer with an incredible instrument, we know the difference. But it can still right. be compelling even if someone doesn't have that. 
Um, yeah, so I don't think I'll like I'll actually probably listen to this again to see if there's anything that I missed. Yeah, I'll go back uh, to it. It's a challenging listen trying to get all the way. Yeah. All, all you gotta listen. I, I found myself listening in like segments, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I'll try it again because I'm. It, it's sort of like a room thing. Like I'm intrigued. Like what? Like there's something in here that's there's some hidden magic in this thing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, there's something in it. There's definitely something in it. And it made me miss when I realized I, th- I thought it sounded like the Dead Milkman. I was like, oh, I got to listen to some Dead yeah, Milkman. Yeah, yeah. It does evoke. I didn't even think of that. But yeah, it does. It evokes some things that you recognize, and yet it's totally its own thing. Yeah. Um, well, give us a record suggestion. Do it in the uh, Apple uh, the Apple reviews um, and leave us five stars. And, uh, and thanks for listening. Thanks, y'all. Listen.